If you would, open with me in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Last week, uh, we saw the Lord challenge his people in their priorities. By this point in history, Babylon has fallen, the Persian Empire has come in, and Cyrus has made a decree that every captive people in his empire are freed to go back home. But when he speaks to those captives that are returning to Jerusalem, not only does he say you can go home, but he says go home with the express intent of rebuilding the temple. And he gives them money, he gives them materials, he returns to them the things that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple, and he says, go, and the people go. 50,000 people, roughly, go back, and they make a good start of it. Uh, They rebuild the altar and the place of sacrifice. They build the foundation of the temple, Uh, but then for 15 years, the work stalls. For 15 years, there's a foundation, there's an altar, and there's nothing else, and the people knew what they were supposed to do. They knew that they were supposed to build the house of the Lord, and they would have said that they would have. It just wasn't the right time. They would get around to it as soon as, just not yet. As soon as the crops came in, they just haven't come in yet. As soon as it wouldn't provoke their neighbors, but just not yet. As soon as their houses were done, and they had a place to go home to, but just not yet. And so God challenges their disordered priorities and he says why is it okay for you to live in finished houses but my house lies in ruins and he said i will never bless you while you're living in disobedience in his kindness in his justice in his mercy in his goodness in his faithfulness god does not bless disobedience and he gives them a very simple solution repent and start working and the people listen I love that. And three weeks after that first message, they get started on the temple project once again. He, he fills them with his spirit. He and gives their heart the desire to do the work, and they move forward in obedience. And it's a great scene there at the end of chapter 1 after a very difficult message. And you and I, frankly, sometimes need that same difficult message because we are a people with every excuse. We know what we're supposed to do. Obedience is often hard, but obedience is rarely complicated. We're just so good at excusing it. I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's really difficult. But it's really messy. But it might cost me. But I don't know. But my situation is so unique, and we're full of just all these excuses, and we're forced to answer this same question. Consider your ways and consider what path you're actually on. Whose house are you building? Are you building your house or are you building the Lord's house? What path are you on? Are you on the path with the greatest goal being God's glory or are you on the path with the greatest goal being your comfort, your priorities, your mission, whatever your heart desire is? Is it you or is it God that you are really after to please? And our lives bear out the answer. The reality is where we spend our time, where we spend our money, where we spend our emotions, how we respond to difficulty, Those are the things that reveal where our hearts are at. Those are the things that reveal what really sits on the throne of our heart. And as uncomfortable as it is, it is good for God to provoke us to ask those questions. See, the people hear and they obey because ultimately they fear the Lord. And our obedience is going to be driven by the same thing. Not by some sense of guilt. That works for a time, maybe. But real, lasting, genuine obedience is driven by an understanding of the truth of who God is. And this week, we move to the other side of that warning. Uh, Not only consider your ways, 
But once you've set your heart on the path to obedience, consider the pitfalls that are on that path. Because even once you've moved your direction and set your face toward obedience, there are challenges on that road, but those challenges come with very, very specific promises, and that's what we're going to see today. So if you're not there already, find your way to Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read just the first few verses, set the stage for where we're going today. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we were reminded last week that you promised to be with your people and there was no greater promise. Lord, we recognize that if you are not with us, then no other promise matters. And if you being with us isn't enough to move us toward obedience, then nothing will be. Lord, I pray that as we set our hearts on your word, that you would draw us toward obedience. As we read, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Open our blind eyes, open our deaf ears so that we can see the truth of who you are and what you've called us to be and do. And then, Lord, uh, as your spirit drew and empowered those faithful remnant, Lord, I pray that you would empower us, draw us toward obedience. Make us able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are a dependent people. So Lord, do away with our excuses and move us toward obedience that honors you and that ultimately brings not only blessing here and now, but eternal blessing as we anticipate eternity with you. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something of kind of generational wars now, where not only do we label every generation, but you have to be hostile toward all the other generations. That's a thing. Um, and one of the favorite critiques from older generations onto younger generations, and I now feel that I'm part of one of the older generations, so I can say this, is that uh, the younger generation, uh, they're, they're a little bit weaker than they should be. Not quite as resilient. You hear the word snowflake uh, used a lot and not in a wintertime context. And, you know, you look kind of at what's coming and you say, yeah, there's probably a little bit less resilience that there used to be in certain things. Now, don't forget the older generation raised that younger generation, so that's something we'd like to forget. But the thing is, I like to think that I'm pretty resilient, at least to certain things. I like to think that I'm stronger, that I'm tougher, at least than what's coming up through the ranks now. Uh, but the reality is that while I can deal fairly well with some pretty difficult things, uh, I've got trouble rebounding from criticism sometimes. That sometimes correction uh, really kind of drives me inward and downward often, and that I respond to critiques sometimes not very well, even when the critique is delivered in a way that's truthful and kind and helpful. Um, in other words, I tend to be a little bit of a snowflake and a little bit sensitive about some things. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because if you were with us during chapter one, you recognize that God's people got rebuked pretty handily. They got corrected pretty hard, and maybe you and I, as we're going through that chapter one, maybe our toes got stepped on a little bit. I know a couple of you mentioned that, that it did. There were some painful 
realities that God digs up about our priorities. And the question is, when God does that, when he steps firmly on your toes, when he makes you very uncomfortable with your own sin, what do you do? How do we respond when God hits us where it hurts, when our sin gets exposed, and when there's really nowhere to kind of run and hide about it? We know that the people responded rightly. They get to work. But how does that work get sustained? What keeps it going? What chapter 2 is going to do is it's going to open up some of the pitfalls to the path that they've started now. It's going to show them some of the dangers along the pathway that they have chosen to walk now in obedience. They've considered their ways. They've committed to the work, but there's danger on that road. So God's going to point out the danger. He's going to comfort his people with his promises, and he's going to warn them to be mindful of a couple of things. He's going to warn them, first of all, to be mindful of sorrow, of discouragement, And he's going to warn them to be mindful about their sin, their rebellion. And finally, he's going to bring them back to a reminder of God's sovereignty throughout every part of the process. So let's open up chapter 2. And as we look first at God calling them to be mindful of their sorrow, uh, chapter 2 kind of opens with a problem. Chapter 1 closes a great scene of obedience. The people hear and they get to work. But chapter 2 opens with a problem. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet. So it's been just under two months since the first message. It's been about three and a half weeks since they started building. And he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, God speaks to the people, and the timing and the subject are both going to be really, really important for us to understand here. First of all, uh, the subject is the temple. And he says, who among you remembers the first house? He's talking about the temple that Solomon built. Now, anybody who remembers that by this point would be at least 70 years old. For them to be old enough to have any kind of a memory formed of the temple the way that it was, they would have to be at least 70 years old by now. And maybe, maybe Haggai is one of those older people who had been a child during the captivity and had grown up in captivity and now returns to the land as an old man. Uh, Maybe there were some older women there as well. And they remember, they can think back, and they remember the temple the way it used to be. Even the ones that hadn't seen it would have heard about it. And God asks a painful question. He says, so how do you see this house now? When you think back and you remember the grandeur of Solomon's temple, gleaming white stones overlaid with gold, bronze, brilliant, this would have been a crown jewel in the ancient Near East. He says, how does this temple compare to that? And then just to make sure they don't miss the point, he says, it's like nothing, right? He said, why would God say that? I mean, these are poor people. They're doing their best. Why does God say, doesn't this look like nothing in your eyes? And not only does God bring up uh, the apparent shortcomings of this current temple, he does it at a very, very particular time that you and I would probably completely miss. Because the seventh month, the 21st day of the month, that is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. That is this time when Israel would uh, go and they would live in these little temporary dwellings and it would remind them of when they were brought out of Egypt and God allowed them to live in temporary dwellings as they moved on toward the promised land. So there's kind of this this connection to the exodus in their minds. Just hold on to that for a minute. You're going to have to do some thinking today. I'm sorry. Hold on to that in your mind for a minute. 
But if you were to read through the book of Kings, you would also know that this is the time when Solomon dedicated that first temple. So it's like at the same time of year that Solomon dedicates this majestic, beautiful temple. And when they dedicate it, when the people come and they consecrate the area and they pray and they sing, this cloud of glory fills the temple. And God's presence is there to the degree that the priests can't even be inside as God's glory fills his place. The people know that. And God says, so how about this current temple that you guys are building? What's the problem? Discouragement. Anybody who saw that first temple knows that this one isn't like that one. They would be mourning what they lost. Because make no mistake, no matter how well they did with the resources they had, this new temple is going to look like loss when compared to the old ones. There would be this nagging question, is what we're doing now really worth anything at all? Is obedience worth it if it can't be like it was? You and I are prone to that same thing, by the way. Why do you think we have a phrase, the good old days? We even get it with the church. We read the book of Acts and we're like, man, why can't it just be like it was then? The church is born and it just explodes into existence and, and the spirit's there and the people love each other and yeah, there's persecution, but the church is thriving. Why can't we go back to that? And we think of the Reformation and how kind of the, this new doctrinal love of truth kind of spread across Europe and then the world as the people came back to a love of God's word. Or we think of uh, the great awakenings even here in the States. We go, why are we missing that? Why can't we get tens of thousands of people together regularly to hear about God's word? Or even on a more kind of just localized sense, we're, we're prone to look around at other churches. We've got a great building, but it's a little old. It's not very big. What about those other churches that have bigger ministries, bigger budgets, bigger staff, bigger reach? See, it is a constant temptation among God's people to look around or to look back and compare their work to some other work and wonder whether it's really worth it. To be very discouraged, not because of what's happening, but because of what's not happening. And so God speaks to this people and their discouragement. And the hope that he gives them is based on this series of promises that he makes. Look what he says. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Be strong. Why? Promise number one. Be strong. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Promise number one, don't lose heart, don't get discouraged, do not fear because I am with you. He said that when they started to build, right? But now with every stone that goes up, with all the progress that gets made, they actually need to hear that more and more. Because the more progress that gets made, the more clear it's going to be that this building isn't like the one that came before. There's a danger that as they move forward, they actually get more and more discouraged. Why? Because the glory of that last temple was really its hallmark. The fact that God's presence was there made it absolutely unique among all the earth. 
And there's the chance that as they build this new place in obedience, God looks at it and says, that's not worthy of my presence. Maybe God looks at this new place and says, you know, I was in the old temple, but this place is just not fit for me. And the promise is, God says, I will be with you. Why? Because he's faithful. Their work will never be worthy of God's presence, but neither was Solomon's. God did not dwell in that first temple because it was pretty. He dwelled among his people because he promised that he would. God says that he is going to remain with them not because their work is great, not because it's worthy of his presence. No human hands could craft a house worthy of the presence of the God of creation. He says, I'm going to be with you because I made a covenant promise that I would. That covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit will remain in your midst, so do not fear. That covenant that you broke, that your fathers broke, that every generation going as far back as you can remember broke, that covenant that you were unfaithful to, I am still faithful to. My spirit is still in your midst. Now, it's important to remember that glory cloud never does come back to this place. The Ark of the Covenant never comes back. It's gone. Lost to history by this point. There's no mercy seat. There's a holy of holies and a blank space. And yet God still says, my spirit will be with you. It's not what it was, but I still am who I am. And, and that callback to their history, be strong, be strong, be strong, that is intentional. Remember I said this happens at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. They would read the law during that feast. And right around the end of the law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, you know what God says three times to his people? Be strong, be strong, be strong. Why? For I am with you and I will not leave you or forsake you. You have to understand these words don't come out of nowhere. This is not random. This is so deeply rooted in their history as a people. And not only their history as a people, but their history in this place. God has promised that he will be with them and that this place has significance. And then he makes a second promise. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God reminds them in the second promise that he is still sovereign. He reminds them of his ultimate power over people and possessions. He says, I'm going to shake the nations. Those nations that threaten you now, those people that hate you now, I have the will and the ability to shake and to shatter them. And there's a time coming when those nations will bring their treasures to the house of the Lord. Now that verse right there, uh, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. That part is probably the most debated part in the entire book. And without getting really, really deep into grammar there, it deals with whether that is the desire of nations, meaning a messianic promise. You might have heard that idea, the desire of nations in songs that we sing, or the treasures of the nations. I'm going to tell you that I go with treasures, possessions of the nations because of some plural things in there and because of the immediate context. You take it as a messianic reference. We are still very, very good friends. But essentially, God says that those things that the nations hold dear, 
they're going to bring to this place. So don't worry about the nations. I'll shake them. Don't worry about the money. It's all mine anyway. Silver, gold, it all belongs to me. And verse 7 is also the only verse in this book that's directly quoted in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Hundreds of years in the future, the author of Hebrews is going to say that this shaking of the nations is still yet to come. That there's a time coming when God shakes and shatters the temporary kingdoms of the earth so that only one remains. And that is the kingdom of God and his glorious son, Jesus Christ. But there's another promise, a third promise here that we can't miss. And he says, and in this, he says, in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Last promise is this is still his chosen place. This building that they're building, this temple, is no accident, and it is still critical. Not only because of obedience, but because God says that the latter glory is going to outshine the initial glory. How in the world can that be when this building is not nearly as glorious as the first one? How can that be when that glory... A young Jewish couple bring their infant son into the courts of the temple to be dedicated. And as they press their way through the crowds, an old man named Simeon comes up to them and he grabs their son from them. And Simeon says that he has seen the salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all peoples. He says that this child will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory of the people of Israel. The glory cloud never returns, but the sun does. Jesus Christ, the fullness of the radiance of God, will walk on these temple grounds. But even that's not the end. Because although Jesus was the Prince of Peace who brought peace between sinful men and a holy God, he was also promised to be the Prince of Peace and the one who rules over the nations. And the Messiah will rule from his temple. And we're going to have to wait till Zechariah for us to tell more about that. But when God says, in this place, I will bring peace, He is reminding the people that this place is still, by the way, from way back in the Pentateuch, this is still his chosen place. So, all that to say, the Lord deals with that first danger that might stop the work, the threat of discouragement, of losing heart when they look at what is and compare it to what was, but that's not the only thing that might hinder them in what they've been called to do. Uh, Discouragements might sap their strength and their desire to do the work, but he also has to deal with with their sin. He has to call them to be mindful of their sin because their sin might not only hinder the work, it might hinder God's blessing in their life altogether. As we come to verse 10, some time has passed. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So we're about two months later. We're in mid-December of 520 now. The people continue to work, but God has to call something to their minds, and he's going to do that by asking questions about the law. Look at verse 11. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. So it's pop quiz time for the priests. If you have holy consecrated meat and you carry it in the robe, in your garment, and your robe then touches something else, does it make that food holy? In other words, is holiness contagious? And the priests rightly answer, no, it doesn't work like that. And he asks another question. Look at verse 13. And Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Well, if holiness isn't contagious, what about contamination? What about uncleanness? What about sin? And the priests say, yeah, yeah, that'll catch. The basic principle that's presented here is it is far easier to spread sin and uncleanness than it is to spread holiness. It's much easier to fall into sin than it is to maintain obedience. And with that reality, he moves forward and he says in verse 14, So it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, the sins of the people have impacted the offerings that they bring to this place. For 15 years, the people have been offering unclean worship when they think they're doing okay. It's a big deal. And so he asks them a very pointed third question. He says, Now consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Uh, from this day onward can mean forward or backward. It's kind of a weird linguistic thing there. What he's saying is stop for a moment. Consider this. Think about this. I want you to stay where you are right now, and I want you to think back about how things were. Look back. What was life like while the temple was still unfinished? How are things going? He reminds me, he says, well, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Remember, things are terrible. You plant and you reap and you put it into store, but it never seems to last. You expect there to be enough and there's just never as much as you thought was there. And in verse 17... God is going to give them the lesson behind the law. God has to interpret their history for them here. Verse 17 says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. See, God says, I need to explain to you what was happening. The people couldn't have told you why. From their perspective, they worked hard. They planted at the right time with the right seed in the right place but even when they planted, even when they worked, even when they gathered, it never seemed to work out. And they would have been absolutely clueless to be able to tell you why. They had these spiritual blinders on who, that, that prevented them from seeing that it was a result of their sins. We've actually seen God do something similar to this before in the Minor Prophets. You remember when we went through Joel, and you say, absolutely not. That was like February, March. I don't remember yesterday. All right. In Joel, there was this plague of locusts. And you remember what Joel had to say to the people? Wake up! This is not a bug problem. This is a sin problem. This is God dealing with you in space and time for your spiritual rebellion. God is doing a very similar thing here. He says, wake up, look back. Life was not hard just because life's so hard sometimes. Life was hard because you were sinful. 
See, your discouragement's a danger. It might prevent you from moving forward in obedience, but it's not the only threat. Uh, Consider this, people. Your sin is a further danger on your road to obedience. Sin brings you hardship, and sin is deadly contagious. Think back to that example. Was it easier to spread the holiness, or was it easier to spread the contamination? Sin is always easier. The flesh naturally wants to do the things of the flesh. If you drift, you don't drift into obedience. You drift towards sin. And there's always a reason. There was always an excuse. For these people in particular, there was always this safety net. We know we're supposed to rebuild the temple, and we will. As soon as the crops come in, we're going to rebuild the temple. We just got to get this lined up, and then we'll be free to do that. We will re- we'll rebuild the temple. We will. But as soon as it won't provoke our neighbors around us, we don't want to start a fight. As soon as this is taken care of, we'll do that. We'll rebuild the temple. We will. As soon as our houses are done, we have to have a place to go back home to every night. As soon as this is taken care of, then we will obey. And God says there is no such thing as half-hearted obedience. You don't get obedience with a backup plan. Obedience with a safety net. That's not how it works. Everything that you offered on that altar while you refused to finish the temple, it was worthless. It was unclean. There's obedience in faith or there's disobedience. That's it. But what if they do obey? What's the positive point to this warning? God says, from this day on, I'll bless you. See, you look around and in the past, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they would yield nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. He says, write this down, Israel. Mark this day on your calendar. Make a note of it. Remember that every day that you were disobedient, you knew nothing but hunger and want and need. Now stand here and take note and watch and see that if every day of the future, I don't provide for your every need. It's, it's not quite as audacious or bold as this, but it's almost as if God is saying, test me. I'm giving you this specific date for a purpose. Look back and see what was. And just watch what will happen. I want you to remember this date and the blessings that obedience brings. As we close, that that day in December is a busy one for Haggai because now not only does he speak to the priests and the people about the law to warn them about the pitfall of sin, but now he's going to give a word specifically meant for Zerubbabel, the governor. And this message is one that is a reminder of God's sovereignty. Chapter 2 closes with a problem. Actually closes with several problems. And if we were just to read what God says, we would be able to get it and we would understand it. We would absolutely see that it's comforting. But I want to make sure that we unpack the issues that Zerubbabel in particular is facing here. Because I want us to see the depth of what is happening and what he's facing. First of all, remember, he is leading an impoverished people. The crops have not been good. The rain has not come. These are a people in real physical need. He is leading an impoverished people. Secondly, he's leading a discouraged people. Some remember the temple as it was. And even those that have never seen it know that it's not what it could have been. They have absolutely suffered loss, visible loss because of their rebellion. And he is leading a people who are potentially disheartened and discouraged. 
not only is he leading a potentially disheartened and discouraged people, he is leading a people that tend toward rebellion. When you lead people, you lead sinners. And they've already proven that they're willing not to work once. And all it takes for that little example is for a couple of people to get it in their hearts and minds that this isn't worth it, this isn't right, now is not the right time. And sin catches And so he is leading a people where there's the very real threat of moving back into rebellion once again. Leading a struggling people is not easy. When they run out of strength, they are going to rely on his. When they lose heart, they are going to need his passion, his excitement, his obedience. When they move towards sin, they're going to need his correction. That's a difficult burden to place on someone. And if that wasn't enough, there is the very real threat of their neighbors. As that temple goes up, the bigger it is, the more visible it becomes. The more and more of a symbol of Jerusalem's reconstituted strength it becomes, and the more and more antagonism that's going to draw from the people around them, particularly the Samaritans who have no interest in a rebuilt Jerusalem, And Zerubbabel is a man who is not king. He is a man without a real formal army here. And if there's a struggle, it might not go well. And more than that, even though Darius has said it's okay to build the temple, if it starts to make a war in one of his provinces, there's every possibility that Darius can say, this is not worth it, you need to stop. And if there's war among these people, then things go very, very badly, very, very quickly. And all of those things in one sense, they make physical sense to us. They make political sense to us. We can see how those would be a struggle. But understand this, that's not actually the biggest problem that Zerubbabel faces. The biggest challenge that he faces isn't physical, and it's certainly not political. The biggest challenge that Zerubbabel faces with regard to his authority is theological. You say, that's weird. It is, but that's all right call you back to history for a couple minutes. Josiah, a king who was faithful and who called the people back to a revival, although it was certainly brief. After he died, his son Jehoahaz comes to power and he is wicked. Jehoahaz's son Jehoiakim is also wicked. And when Jehoiakim dies, his 18-year-old son Jeconiah rules in his place. And you say, wonderful. I won't remember those names. What does that have to do with Haggai? I want you to listen to what Jeremiah writes. In Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they long to return, they shall not return. God says to Jeconiah, if you were like the signet ring on my hand, the signet ring is a symbol of the king's power, his authority. They would use it to seal documents. It was a visible reminder of the power and the authority of the king. God says, if that were you, I would take you off and throw you away from me. You're going to go into captivity and you are going to die there. And that would be bad enough, but look at what God goes on to say in Jeremiah 22:28. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? 
Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God says none of Jeconiah's children will sit on the throne in Judah ever again. And they didn't. The next king is one that Nebuchadnezzar appoints, and it's actually his uncle. Zerubbabel is leading a people as a governor, knowing that not only is he not the king, but that the Lord has broken the line of the kings. That promise that God made to David and Samuel, that promise that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne, that promise looks like it's been broken to pieces on the history of Judah's rebellion. And it's in that context that God brings the comfort of this promise. Now let's look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. He doesn't say the nations aren't strong. He doesn't say, no, you're misunderstanding it. They're, they're okay, and the crops are going to be okay. He reminds Zerubbabel that he alone is powerful. He reminds Zerubbabel that it is by my word that nations rise and fall. I'm able to shake the nations, and I'll do it again. And in some senses, that happens pretty quickly. Babylon rises and falls. Persia rises and falls. Greek rises, Greece rises and falls. Rome rises and falls. God continues to shake the nations on and on throughout history until his kingdom comes, which is not shaken. In his sovereignty, he will keep the nation, and in his sovereignty, he'll keep Zerubbabel, his chosen servant. He says, if I can shake the nations, if I can turn brother against brother, I can keep you, Zerubbabel, even though you are in a tenuous, terrifying place, I can keep you through my power. And it gets better. Verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. Now, look, if God says, declares the Lord twice in one sentence, go ahead and underline it, it's probably important. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Does that sound familiar? Guess who Zerubbabel's grandfather was? It's Jeconiah. That signet ring that was plucked off and cast away, that same promise is reiterated to his grandson. These words that show up in your Bibles are not accidental. God is richly drawing off the history of his people. What a marvelous comfort to know that where your people failed, your fathers failed, your God has not failed and that he will keep every promise that he's made. And that brings us to the end of Haggai chapter 2. But wait a minute, you say. That's great for Zerubbabel. 
but God can't lie. And it looks like God has promised himself into a corner now uh, because God said that one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever. And God also said that none of Jeconiah's children would ever sit on the throne. How do you have a line with an eternal covenant promise and a line that you have cursed in your faithfulness? And how do those two things coexist? For the answer, I want you to turn to Haggai chapter 3. And you say, there is no Haggai chapter 3. If there's a Haggai chapter 3 in your Bible, you need to return that Bible. For Haggai chapter 3, I want you to turn to its alternate name, which is Matthew chapter 1. Maybe you remember chapter 1 of Matthew uh, if you were here with us when we started going through Matthew, which I know was a long time ago. It's before some of you were born. But not really. Matthew chapter 1 opens with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look what it says in verse 10. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Do you see those names? From faithful Josiah to wicked Jeconiah. But then on to who? Zerubbabel? That broken line? That signet ring cast off and placed back on? The governor who would never be king? In line of the one who is the king of kings? How is that possible? How can God be faithful to David and faithful to his promise to curse Jeconiah. Look at verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You realize the only time in that genealogy where we don't read the father of is from Joseph to Jesus? How does Jesus have the promise of David but not the curse of Jeconiah? By being Joseph's oldest child, but not Joseph's son. By the way, things like the virgin birth, they matter. And in a way that human minds could never comprehend, imagine, or put together, God remains perfectly faithful to what would seem to be an impossible promise. Do not ever discount your Old Testament as something distinct, different, or long ago and far away. This is God's single redemption story for his people for all time. So what do we do with this? First of all, <laughs> what do you do when the work seems small? Well, you remember that it was never about your effort anyway. God didn't inhabit the temple because it was pretty. God doesn't bless a church building because it's big. And God doesn't love you because you have a bigger influence than others. God has called us to be faithful, each of us to be faithful, a church in particular to be faithful to a very particular task. And that is what we are held to account for. It is not about what was. It is not about what is around us. It is about whether we are faithful to the task that God has placed in front of us. Second, we need to consider obedience with no backup plan. You and I are prone to say, I will obey so long as. There's always a parachute, there's always a ripcord, there's always a safety net. One of the most tragic 
counseling cases that I have ever worked through. Man and his wife repeatedly separated. And when the man would come home and they would try to work through it, he would always keep a packed suitcase in the closet. Always a safety net. You understand that there will never be commitment to obedience so long as you are planning for things to fail. I'll give to God when. I will serve when. I will obey when. There cannot be a when. Obedience is drawn off of faith, not circumstance. And finally, what's the source of our strength? Look, we come to the end and we say, it's too much. I can't do it. You're right. You're absolutely right. Come to the end of yourself. Recognize that you cannot do it. You were never designed to. Zerubbabel didn't lead because he was good enough. Joshua didn't minister because he was holy enough. The people don't build because, God, because they put it in their own mind. God has got to be the strength behind all of that. And that goes for us as well. That sovereign God who does not fail has promised to equip you for the work that he has given you. That's why we read out of Peter at the very beginning of the service that he has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Either that verse is true or you can throw away the rest of the Bible. You need nothing other than what God has provided for you. It doesn't mean that need is not real. It doesn't mean that pain is not real. It doesn't mean that it is easy. It simply means that we accomplish anything of eternal value only on his strength. Let's pray. Lord, you're good and you're faithful even when we are not. So help us to trust you. Help us to draw on these examples from history of your perfect faithfulness, to draw on examples of our own lives of your perfect faithfulness, and for that to motivate us toward obedience as we move forward. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. You're worthy of our repentance as we fail. And you are worthy of our trust because you have never broken a promise and you won't. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.